The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. and you're all very welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub and to this event which is one in the very occasional series of uh, visiting lectures that are run by the Oscar Wilde Centre for Irish Writing uh, with the School of English Um, and uh, because I will undoubtedly forget to tell you this later on after this talk there's going to be uh, tea and biscuits upstairs in the ideas space So you've got that to look forward to, regardless of what happens in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, I'm absolutely delighted that this lecture is being given uh, today by Professor Nicholas Allen, who is the director of the Wilson Centre at the University of Georgia, at Athens in Georgia. Um, But really, we think of him as still belonging to Trinity College, where he completed his PhD under Terence Brown and uh, where he did some of his best work, I like to think, uh, to date. Well, I used to be able to introduce him, of course, uh, as the author of uh, Modernism, Ireland and Civil War, that book from 2009, um, which broke so much ground in, in letting us understand the Civil War period, not just in terms of literature and history, but in terms of the visual arts and uh, performance, and I think it changed a lot of our perspectives on that period in Irish history. Uh, Since then, Nicholas has refashioned himself to some degree in conjunction with the the pioneering work that's been done by the Atlantic Archipelago's Research Consortium. Uh, And this was um, an incentive that was very much in line, I think, with the way Uh, that the environmental humanities have been part of a new interface with literary and cultural studies. Uh, And uh, this work that's been carried on by colleagues uh, such as Claire Connolly in Cork, uh, John Brannigan at UCD, uh, and I'm very pleased to to see Chris Pastore from Albany, New York State University uh, with us today. All of these people are now working in fields which look at maritime cultures, uh, cultures of the coastline, um, sea studies, if you like, and and use these really to reshape the way that we have thought about national and historical identities. Um, I was uh, quite sceptical when Nicholas first moved into this territory because I was fairly convinced it was just an excuse to spend a lot of time at the beach. Uh, But in fact, he has uh, produced the goods Uh, And uh, all of us, I think, were very pleased uh, to see the publication in 2017 of an edited collection of essays, which he co-edited with Nick Groom and Joe Smith, um, called Coastal Works. Uh, And this uh, book on the cultures of the Atlantic edge was a a series of essays looking not just at Ireland, but at the British Isles generally, from the perspective of coastline studies. And I know from the impact this book had on my own research students, that it presented a real opportunity for new ways of of thinking about Irish uh, identity in the context of 
the archipelagos that uh, we belong to. Um, Nicholas has followed up, or is following up, on uh, coastal works with a new study. Uh, and this is what he's going to talk from today. This is for a forthcoming book. And uh, the title of the book is, uh, I believe, the, the title of his talk this afternoon. So Nicholas will give the lecture and afterwards I hope we'll have time for questions. Uh, but I'll now welcome him along and his title, Sea Tangle, Island Literature and the Coast, is what he'll speak on. Good afternoon everyone, how are you? Can you hear me okay at the back there? I'm afraid my already mangled accent has got worse with travel and time, so if you're finding anything that I say a little difficult to hear, would you let me know and I'd be happy to repeat myself if it's something that's repeatable. It's nice to be with so many old friends. I appreciate in the Friday afternoon with all the responsibilities so many of us have that you've taken the time to come and be with me, and it's nice also to be back with my old masters. He'll tell me off for saying that afterwards, but uh, I still have a debt that will never be discharged, and it's nice to be here to say something that I hope is uh, appropriately profound. I'm going to talk to you. Uh, Eve was kind enough to mention the last book that I wrote, which is now too long ago. But for the last 10 years, really, I've been running a humanities centre uh, in Galway and then also here in, uh, in Athens in Georgia. And I suppose much of my time was taken up in building that project. But in moving too far away from the sea, I developed an obsession with water. I grew up by the sea. I've never lived very far away from it before. But I find over time that this sense of living in a coastal place was something that had resonance for my own thinking. And I've been working away now over the last number of years in this book, and it will be published, I hope, later this year and beginning of next. It's just at the final stage of its contractual life before I say anything more about it. But this really today is an overview of what will be this book. And I had thought of the different ways that I could talk about it with you. And in the end, I decided that I might give you some overview at the start of my understanding of what a blue humanities, of an environmental humanities, of a coastal work, of what that might look, with, look like in very broad strokes. I wanted to talk with you a little bit about why in Ireland, that even though we are most obviously an island connected by the sea, with the sea and water, I've never very much entered the declension of our criticism. And I wanted to take you through two modes of coastal writing. One was to think about the idea of the sea in late 19th and early 20th century literature and to think about it historically and in context of imperialism but also in context of mercantilism and trade and the things that we don't always associate with Ireland's past which is the exchange of objects of everyday life as being an experience that's variegated by many cultures overlaying each other. And then I wanted to move towards the end and you know we're getting towards the end when we come to more contemporary literature and think a little bit about the aesthetic of such cultural coastal work it's not just a question that Ireland is connected by the sea historically to other places and that those other places have had an effect on our cultures. It's also that the aesthetic of contemporary literature has elements of these histories embedded within it that might make us read those books differently. And I'm going to talk a little about Anne Enright's The Gathering. I'm going to talk about the wonderful poetry of Elena Quillenon that I want to finish with. Talk a little bit about John Banville's The Sea. So a general introduction. A historical overview of some classic works of the revival, Yeats and Joyce. Look at some of the sketchbooks by Jack Yeats, for example. And then moving up to the mid-century to some contemporary writing. I have been told ever that I need to change the title of the book in case it gets mixed up on international searches for sea angling. So <laughs> it will be called Ireland Literature and the Coast. 
I suppose if I were to give you a pivotal moment since the year 2000 when conversations about the archipelago, about the Irish and British islands began to change, it would be the publication of the magazine Archipelago, edited by Andrew McNeely, whose first single authored book was an iron caning that uh, Lily put, published. And Andrew brought together a collection of writers, artists, walkers, thinkers, to reimagine how these Irish and British islands might be configured together. And a nice symbol, I think, to keep in your head as we begin to have this conversation is the cover of all of those magazines. And it's about to publish its last issue now, the 12th. And I'm going to work with Fiona Stafford in the next year or two to work with Lily Put to recreate the kind of anthology of its contents. And I think what you can get here is an idea of looking at Ireland from the North Atlantic, of looking at it from a different level, not just on the ground, and trying to imagine both a different human and ecological maritime awareness of these islands as they connect together. Now, this is connected, I think, very much to a longer tradition in literature and the wonderful essay by Hester Bloom on the terraqueous planet and thinking about the scale of water in relation to the scale of land and thinking about our political organisation. And in a way, I suppose some of the questions that are referred to behind me are not questions that will be surprising to any student of literature or history in Ireland of the later 20th or early 21st centuries. It's perhaps a good time to have this talk today since two fishermen from the north of Ireland were arrested yesterday by the uh, Irish Navy for uh, impinging on territorial waters which are still unclear as to whether they begin and end. But the question of fluidity, of markedness, of circulation of these temporal boundaries is something that's becoming, I think, much more prevalent in a study of the blue humanities at large, but which might have a very particular purchase here in Ireland. And I have been fascinated to think, what does Ireland look from the near inshore? What does Ireland look like from the beach? All of those great poems, I think, of the troubles of the 70s, if you think of Heaney and North, so influenced by Robert Lowell and that poetry of the northeastern United States. Is there a reason why we often find, as we do with Maeve McGuckin, as we do with Kieran Carson, to find ourselves on the edge of the Atlantic city of Belfast, to find ourselves along that northeastern coastline, wondering where we are, what the past means, and what futures we might collectively have together. I think we can take it very much as a kind of given landscape, but it is historicizable, and it is also particularly aesthetic, that there is something in this rendering of the coastline which suggests that place where land meets water as the place to think beyond the boundaries that we inherited through states or empires, or the breakup of those things in the century previous. It's also true that these things have begun to be think about much more in the last number of years, and I would recommend John Bannigan's wonderful archipelagic modernism to you. And what he has to say about this modernist literature, I think, holds to much of the other books that I'm going to talk about today. And perhaps the aesthetic question of resonances and pluralities it's something that we could think about more, that it's not just a question of identities that interrelate with each other, that overlap and overlay, that wash upon each other like the tides, that you can see them differently according to the pool of the moon and the skies, but rather that there's something in the formal construction of the literary text which also relates to this form of layering and overlap and intermingling that you might find at the coast. And as I move towards thinking about John Sherman, and particularly the portrait of the artist as a young man, there's something, I think, in that construction of late 19th and early 20th century modern writing that owes its geographical shape 
to this idea of the coast, which becomes apparent, I think, first of all, because it's a borderline between the inner life of Ireland and this external world related to the history of empire, and becomes something much more occluded through the 20th century as Ireland turns its back on the sea. Because in context of a territorial nationalism and in context of a land-based partition, there is a way in which the idea of Ireland becomes a little bit like Patrick Kavanagh, alone on his farm, where he can feel the sea wind, but he can no longer see the water. And partly what I've been trying to do in this book is to bring the weather of the sea back into these texts. I was always fascinated, having taught for so long now in America, that the way in which students take the idea of snow at the end of the dead as a given fact of our environment, when it's actually, even in the west of Ireland, quite a rare phenomenon. So in thinking about what the declension of water might be in the literature, it made me think about those different states of water and how different apparitions of the liquid might give the reader a different sense of identity, of belonging, of their experience in the world. Now, I am conscious too, within all of this, of the actual materiality of the sea around us. I am conscious of having lived in the west of Ireland and have had a fascination for a long time with Tim Robinson and had the great pleasure of spending much time with him in his house in Rhinestone and looking back inland to the remains of the bay the mountains of Connemara pinned behind. And that awareness too, which I think comes very much in Robinson of a kind of modest sense of the world of knowing that this is not about containment, that this is not again about mapping in the sense of trying to create any clear line of saying this is here, has always been, and we never paid attention to it, but that ourselves, we are part of a contemporary moment, which is historicizable, but which is related to the sea and might give us a different essence, I suppose, or a different idea of this ocean that goes all around the island. So we could begin even back in William Butler Yeats's childhood and standing nervously before you thinking of Terence writing that great biography of William Butler Yeats and you saying that much of it that you had thought when you were walking along the beach and those uh, perambulations by the sea were moments of meditation and thinking about Yeats's writing, but Yeats himself a writer who spent much of his time in transit between Ireland, on the ferry, Dublin, Liverpool, on the train. The infrastructure of connecting the Union since the 1800s was something with which Yeats was intimately familiar, and across then to France, of course, in so many of his journeys. A childhood filled with the memorabilia of his family's adventures through the Pollock's Fence shipping line, which of course is in decline by his childhood by this memory of sea captains and sea travellers, and by this idea of Sligo as a seaborne town, something that we sometimes forget again, thinking that that river that goes out into the Atlantic Ocean is something that never returned. And you can see even in these little kind of childhood stories of Yeats's, which he recuperates much later on, that you begin to think about the purchase of water in his writing, and I'll not go into it now, but if you thought even mind going to tell you a little bit about John Sherman, about the ways in which the desiccate and the desert are always so terrible in Yeats's poetry. That it's always the stopping of water and its evaporation which leads to the most awfully tyrannical moments in the period of modernity in the early 20th century. And if you think even in those difficult moments when things in transition, the middle sequence of Easter 1916 is probably the most obvious one. That you go to the living stream, that you go to the water as a kind of historical and metaphorical resource to imagine change. Now, it might be surprising to think about Easter 1916, which is about the end of one kind of global representation of water through the British and the Maritime. But Yeats has this rivulet, this stream, this internal irrigation of Ireland there. 
as a kind of prompt, I think, to say that this revolution is not a moment of finitude, but something which continues again. If you go much later to like a poem, A Prayer for My Daughter, or the poems which are set around the tower in the west of Ireland, in which his writing is perched upon this limestone landscape with its unpredictable upwellings, if you think of the Civil War and of all of the uh, disturbance that it created in the landscape in which he grew up and wrote about, but there's so much of water all the way through his writing, which is both the reality of life in the west of Ireland, but again, also, I think, a metaphorical resource. And if we were to think broadly about this idea of water and this writer like Yeats, and thinking about how the early novel relates to the later writing, we might go back to so many other of our Irish writers. We might go back to Seamus Heaney in particular, they're all very fond, I think, of the idea of snug as a gun, of the digging of his shovels of the field. And there's been a wonderful book published recently on the idea of the bog, which I think at least brings this liquidity into the landscape. But in that great, and I still think underread, last collection, Human Tune, with its wonderful versions of the water inland, in his creations of a Virgilian landscape in the countryside of County Derry, you also have this poem about his pen, the Conway Stewart, the nib uncapped, treating it to its first deep snorkel in a newly opened ink bottle. That there are clues all the way through this writing about the ways in which we have territorialized this literature of the later 20th century and the early 21st century in ways that actually aren't entirely congruent with what's going on in the texts. I think of Heaney, even there beside Loch Ney, the poem The Eel Works, whenever he goes back to his childhood. And of course, that central symbol of his childhood and of coming to awareness is the dripping pump. So there is always this circulation of liquidity in the poems. And that idea of angling is important to what I'm going to talk about later and uh, thinking a little bit in particular about Louis McNeese and the sense of the visual when you get to the coastal. Even a recent poem like Sinead Morrissey's The Meteor Shower, when really the basis of the poem is the idea of going out with your family late at night onto the flat roof of your house. We angle ourselves with a slant, then slowly straighten. What was here in the morning has gone, fair head, rattling. We've stepped out on the deck of the ship, the lights of the marina of the hill back streets. One of the translations that happens, I think, in the later 20th and early 21st century is that this idea of the coastal comes further and further inland. And perhaps one of the way markers in that might be if you were to think again of a writer like John McGahern and that Lakeland that he opens out into the west of Ireland is the start of this awareness that perhaps our fluidity of our culture, which had seemed so stuck, I think, so much of the middle part of the 20th century, that writers began quite early to rethink it again. And you could imagine here too, Sinead Morrissey rewriting that call of ports and radio signs that Seamus Heaney has so famously with Dogger Bank, Fair Isle. And here she's making it domestic and also in a way cosmic that Heaney, I think, perhaps gestured to in poems like Exposure, but that she takes further by making it temporal and short-lasting. So, in a way, I want to think about recent Irish literature, but um, literature since perhaps the 1890s, as this kind of squall that you can see behind me in one of Norman Ackroyd's great images of one of my favourite places in the west of Ireland, which is Kilkiernan Bay, just north of Galway and south of Ramstone, that we're trying to find some representative way of showing the ways in which the cultures of land and water have merged in Ireland. And to think that in that merging, is there something more than just the historical account of an imperial experience of a city like Dublin, where it's still so obvious in its port infrastructure as you walk down towards the sea? But is there also something in its aesthetic? Is there something about the idea of light 
Is there something about the idea of a fraction? Is there something about the arrangement of landscape that you might say is dependent on a set of coastal variations that we might find a new descriptive language for? So, to begin. For those of you who have read William Butler Yeats's early novel, John Sherman, you will know that it was published under a pseudonym of Gan Conan, that it was really published at the behest of his father, who told him to write something true to life. I'm not quite sure that it's that, but it is a really fascinating rendition of those cultural connections between Sligo, which is unnamed in the book, it passes as a town called Bala, and London. And it does in a really interesting way, because we've again become used to think of the transit, as I mentioned, between Dublin and Liverpool, but there is no radial imperial transit here. There are ships and boats that go all the way around from Sligo to London. And this young man, John Sherman, finds himself in the employ of a shipping company in London. There are all the accoutrements, there is all the furniture in this book of some of Joyce's early work, whereby you find things like mahogany, pictures on the wall, that the internal dimensions of the domestic spaces, of the commercial spaces, tell you so much about what people have access to, about how you could be sitting in Ireland and imagining elsewhere through these wooden things that you have, through these pictures, through these sights and smells and sounds, that kind of synesthesia for which Joyce becomes favourite. And it's here, I think, in Yeats's early work too. But what I might draw your attention to are these last sentences. Every rope was drawn accurately with a ruler, and here and there there were added distant vessels, sailing proudly by, with all that indifference to perspective peculiar to the drawings of sailors. So there is also something here in this untrained illustration that Yeats associates with the maritime. And it has something also to do with the question of perspective, which we're going to come to much more when we begin to read Joyce. There is also something, I think, in this travel around the world, which has to do with an idea of elevation. And I should have mentioned it earlier when we were looking at that wonderful overview of the Gannets down to the islands of Ireland and Britain. But one of the visionary moments of this literary tradition is the way in which the person is translated from their space on the ground and looks at something from a height. You can imagine it to a degree in Heaney, who sort of half takes off the ground in North whenever he imagines this Ashleen calling him to a vision of history. But you get it very much later on in John Banville's The Sea, and you get it very much in that wonderful poem, The Meal, that I will finish with, with Irina Corona. But here it is already, I think, in this refraction of light at the coast. And this idea of sailors, this innumerable and unplaceable population that moves. It comes up also very much in the questions that go through the book about where one belongs. Should you follow your career in London or should you make your life in Ireland for all of its difficulties? And here you have it played out, I think, in small scale, where you look at London, which is a place that's already owned, that he looks at with foreign eyes, and then he imagines the river in Ireland as being something entirely different, something that you would play in, rather than something that would be a transport of business or other things. But I would say also that at the end, when you get to these last sentences, he grew very sad, and suddenly a shooting star, fiery and vagabond, leaped from the darkness. It's typical of this visionary literature, perhaps, to always go to the fringes to experience it. It was the very logic of the Celtic revival that the west of Ireland was a place that could generate these visions of the extreme. Even George Russell went in his painting holidays to the remote north of Donegal. It's something that doesn't traditionally happen. 
in cities, or if it does happen in cities, as it did in the Lake Isle of Inishfree, it's somewhere that you're immediately transported away from. But here you have in Yeats holding both of these contexts in mind. And in a way, John Sherman is a transitional novel, not just in Yeats's career, but in this literature of land and sea. That it's a place that has not refined one for the other, has not yet pulled them apart, but they sit there contiguous to each other. And connected very much to this idea of possession and ownership. And of course, there's nothing harder than to have the ownership of water. Now, to give you a sense again of the depth of the other literary traditions that are behind these kinds of questions of borders, of nationality and of territory. One of the books that I want to speak to you about that comes out a decade after John Sherman is Erskine Childers' The Riddle of the Sands. Now, it is often read simply as a great thriller, which it is, sometimes read as a great novel of sailing instruction. And indeed, for those who do sail, it is meant to be a perfect manual of how small boats work. But it is also suggestive of an archive of reading and the experience that Erskine Childers himself was in possession of that you don't really get a sense of in the novel, except for those points where you discover that the books in the ship's library are important for the discovery of the crook around which the novel turns. But I have had the good fortune to become a friend of the great-grandson of Erskine Childers who shares the same name. And he still has in his possession the personal library of the original Erskine Childers, which he carried upon the Asgard. And this is one of the books that he had, the Oxford Book of English Verse, 1250 to 1900. Little did A.T. Quiller Couch know the dubious ends to which his work of scholarship was put to, but this edition from 1904 from Oxford. And in the book, there is a section, appropriate enough, of Taylor Coldridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, into which is soon a number of handwritten responses, thinking particularly about Coleridge and Shelley. And fascinating for Childers, who was a romantic of a kind, but a very practical person who experienced war, who experienced loss, who was a determined and flexible, more flexible perhaps than we allow a politician. There are these very early reflections, and they are notes which are written back to his reading of Coleridge, but which we know that he shared with Molly Osgood, his Boston-born wife, who was also so much of an impetus to his taking up sailing. He had originally turned his back while at school playing rugby, and sailing was very much in the tradition of manly endeavour that prepared people for um, a martial culture, and same, I suppose, for a younger generation of scouts did to follow. But you have, even within these manuals, this account, and I, I won't read it to you, but there's a wonderful version in these notes of what Coleridge means to Childers. And it is that behind all physical life, behind all human action, there are these other presences or ghosts or spiritual motivations. This is again familiar for many characters in the revival. Russell, I think, of Yeats, perhaps another one. And the question is, through your art, to find their frequency of expression, that you are, to some degree, a kind of translator of these other ways of motivating the world and making change within it. It was completely surprising to me to find that Childers was thinking along these things in the aftermath of his book being published. And so again, it shows that in these books, which are, even if they're thrillers, even if they're popular novels, if they are things which are to warn of invasion, stories about empires and their fates, that there is this deep literary tradition which goes back in the English language and which people like Erskine Childers was accessing. And I think it's important too 
because it expands our vocabulary and language for thinking about the coastline in context of value. Because that coastline always already appeared mediated through the literature of empire. And I mean that in the broadest way, in the sense that versions of Iraq, versions of Persia, versions of the Mediterranean, which also come up in so much of Yeats's poetry, had their own idea of the desert. And you can see behind me in this quotation from the Riddle of the Sands that you're finding yourself on the coast of northern Germany. You are imagining walking through this place through which the water has very quickly gone back, an entirely treacherous place to sail. And that's the basis, of course, of this building up of a fictional German fleet to arise from nowhere like an apparition itself and invade England from its east coast. But if you were to read just this passage, you would imagine this place cold, foggy, damp, uncomfortable, and the Riddle of the Sands is a great study in discomfort, with this kind of unexpected sunniness within it of this desert of sand. Its colour varied from light fawn, where the highest levels had dried in the wind, to brown or deep violet, where it was still wet, and slate grey, where patches of mud soiled its keen bosom. Now, the idea of the desert actually came up earlier in one of the quotations from John Sherman. And what you're also doing here in this moment before flight, we're about to take off shortly with uh, Daedalus in a portrait of the artist as a young man, is this looking down. And so one of the other aspects, one of the other premonitions in this coastal literature is passing through a mixed up cultural landscape where you cannot claim that one thing definitely is or one thing definitely is not. And seaweed and seabirds are great metaphors for this mixed up world through which we pass. For those of you who've had the misfortune of reading much Liam O'Flaherty, that constant kind of screeching of the seagulls in the background, it comes up again much later with somebody like Kevin Barry. That interruption all the time of these birds, the different sounds that they make, is part of this panorama of disquietude that these novels of transition try to represent. I'm being a little unkind. And here, Joyce. There was a long rivulet and strand, and as he waited slowly up its course, he wandered at the endless drift of seaweed. And I want you to think here that you are in Ireland, emerald and black and russet and olive. It moved beneath the current, swaying and turning. The water of the rivulet was dark with endless drift and mirrored the high drifting clouds. The clouds were drifting above him silently, and silently the sea tangle were drifting below him. And the grey warm air was still, and a new wild life was singing in his veins. So there are a number of things to mention. If you think, of course, later of that wonderful passage, which is so well read at the end of Ulysses, when you imagine hope as Gibraltar, part of the expansive power of this coastal literature is to consciously mistake one place for another. And mistake, perhaps, is not the right word, but to overlay one headland or promontory or beach on another such place in an entirely different landscape, or to take the landscape which is given to you and to give it all the appearance of the Mediterranean in its olive and russet colours. On top of that, to go back to the idea of elevation and division, that there's part of this prose description which is also like looking at an impressionist painting, that it's about light, that it's about cloud, and from having Erskine Childers walking around wondering, puzzling over what's happening with his head down, to now beginning to lift your head, is I think a gesture towards that transition that Stephen makes throughout a portrait which is whenever he's about to take flight. And perhaps one of the underread sequences, and to me one of the really remarkable parts, of which there are many of a portrait of the artist as a young man, is thinking about Stephen at school. 
And I don't know if you remember whenever Stephen, they're having their martial play at school and they have the band out and they have their gymnasts out and they have the athletes out and they have presentation of role plays, Shakespeare, I see Andy sitting there. Mm -hmm. I think they have all these uh, cultural affirmations. But what actually happens quietly here, more quietly than happens later on when you get those declarations of how Stephen is going to take flight from the things that bind him to this earth, is that you see the side of the theatre like an ark, like a ship, and of course you think of the ark at the top of the mountain, it itself is elevated by the rise of the tide. So there is a storm as yet to come, or some kind of catastrophe, but there is the thought in Stephen's mind that perhaps in putting these things all together and a kind of aesthetic synchronicity, that you might create the conditions of elevation that are so much to do with the gesture of his character in his name. The sentiment of the opening bars, their languor and supple movement, and there's so much of this idea of the languorous all the way through doubleness. We could have talked in a different way, and if you want to afterwards, we can. Even though in a story like an encounter is again built so much of the ships and the clouds and the commerce of the city on the sea. Evoke the incommunable emotion which had been the cause of all his day's unrest and of his impatient movement of a moment before. His unrest issued from him like a wave of sound, and on the tide of flowing music, the ark was journeying, trilling her cables of lanterns in her wake. Now the lantern is interesting, if you think about this fascination with cultures as they were called of the Far East, of the Oriental in this period in Dublin in particular. The repetition of the word unrest, which comes up so much throughout the portrait and has always seemed to me, again, a kind of presentiment of rebellion, that this is not a book of the rebellion, but I think it's a book in synchronicity with those kinds of cultural energies, which also fed the rebellion as it came out. And you have that moment of the art journey, tide, wave, and then that surprising part, which is truly her cables of lanterns. Now you think of lanterns in elevation, and it's almost like this is all about to take off. Now it doesn't here, but this is the first moment, I think, in the book, and you can argue with me afterwards, that you begin to see that Daedalus is really beginning to feel if you could shape things in some kind of coherent aesthetic that takes in water and land, that the next point of that is actually elevation into the air. Now, I wanted to take a brief aside within all of this to say that these literary works do not sell themselves spring simply from the imagination or not abstract from the complicated mercantile material cultures of Dublin. And what you can see behind me is something I've talked about a little before in different contexts. And it's a chapter of the book which is slightly annotative, which is speaking about two of Jack Yates's sketchbooks. And I just want to thank Katie Milligan, who's sitting over there, who helped me very much in writing that chapter. And Katie is herself the author of a soon-to-be-published monograph, which will be brilliant because I had the pleasure of uh, examining her PhD about Dublin and painting culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. But these are two of, well, four pages I'm going to show you from Jack Yates's sketchbooks. These run really from his time in Devon until his later life in Dublin. You can see behind me there's a gesture towards Cuba. There's Jacob's rich fruitcake, rich I think because it's embedded with the fruits of other places, not of Ireland, of lemons and currants and grapes. You can see beneath one of those attempts to create the colony once again in Ireland as the uh, tobacco of Virginia and the Carolinas brought back here to Neve and Cavan and other unlikely places. So you have these High King cigarettes. And then on the left you have something which comes up quite a lot in these um, books which are little political 
comments, and this is a mass, a memorial card for the Manchester martyrs, for those Fenians who died in 1867 in the attempt to uh, escape from English jails. So, what I wanted to suggest in all of this is that Joyce's world of unrest, which is associated so much in this passage with ideas of waves and the oceanic and the seaborne and the maritime, is deeply connected to this Dublin which is itself obviously a port city, but imbricated in and braided with these cultures of the sea, the remains of which you can see in these scrapbooks, the traces of which you can see here in Jack Yates's fascination. And perhaps even better, these two pages, which we could spend the rest of the time, are looking at my favorite of their, uh, on your left, Piracy on the Thames. There was a little story about a group of young boys who were out robbing people who were punting on the Thames that Jack Yates cut out. But you see the beautiful Indian ink drawing that he did above there? Uh, the figure with that almost kind of half west of Ireland, tall hat, half cowboy hat of them all having a great time. Someone even with a kind of uh, plains Indian headdress, I think they're on the right if you look at it. Liverpool cigarettes, we'll talk a little bit about Liverpool more. Some um, Chinese script, and then if you look over on the right, he loved to collect these fake notes and he would often draw them himself. But what I was really taken with there at the bottom, and you can see, I hope you can see, this um, advertisement for WGT Pollock Sven and Co. in Sligo on the 30th of April 1940. If I'm making an argument to you that in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries that Dublin was part, as Sligo was, as Cork was, we'll give Waterford a go just because we should, as Belfast was, in these complicated material, intellectual, imperial exchanges of ideas connected to the idea of the sea, there is certainly a way in which, after independence and after civil war, that Ireland turned away from that rendition of itself. And if you wanted, and perhaps it's too simplified, to think about the idea of the Pollocksven family, of this shipping magnate to the 19th century, and then by the time you get to the mid-20th century, here you have a farmstead with a hint of a river just in the background, and perhaps a boat, but it's the green fields of Ireland have replaced the blue waters of the Irish Sea. There are other cultural contexts that we could talk about in that regard. There were many books published in the 19th century, which were histories of the British Isles, that said that Ireland was remote because it was an island. So there's a kind of shame attached also to being apparently on the periphery, even as you're connected. But perhaps that turning away is something that you can see in that little snippet of the later Yates family that's there. One of the great writers to represent the complexity of that withdrawal from this world of the sea is one of the great writers of Cork, Elizabeth Bowen, in the last September. Um, again, I think part of these ideas and metaphors have hidden there now for a long time in plain sight. It is, of course, a novel about the end of the big house. It is, of course, about the end of a certain orchestration of landscape in Ireland as it's being changed violently in the War of Independence. It is, of course, a novel about fire and heat. But isn't it interesting that the very opening and the very closing passages both have the idea of the wave in them, and that that idea of the water is so much in your writing. And if you think about Derek Mahan's later great poems about Elizabeth Bowen, he's imagining sitting at her empire desk in the hotel at the Shelbourne just up the street, and thinking about these communications she's going to make across the sea during the emergency when we were cut off. As the car drew up, the Montmorency's unwound from their rugs. They stood shaking hands and laughing in the yellow of the theatrical sunshine. And so clever 
So again, I had a sunniness, that Mediterranean, but also that hint of burning yet to come. They had motored over from Carlo, two toppling waves of excitement that crashed and mingled. For moments, everybody was inaudible. I read that also because if you've read John Banville's The Sea, that we're going to get to later, that frequently the idea of water is an erasure of sound. It's associated with the end of the senses as much as it's also associated with their heightened experience. The Sea, Banville's later novel, is concerned so very much with the drowning and the memories that different people have for the reasons of the drowning of one of its characters. And drowning is a kind of exclamation mark in the syntax of water. And you could think about these waves, these sounds, as these kind of ellipses where you're being left to see what's going to happen. And at the end, you have the first wave of a silence that was to be ultimate, flowed back confidently to the steps. Is there something in the display and the diminution of the senses through this metaphor of water, which is communicating something to us in the literature about these historical and cultural and political changes that have happened since 1929 up until the recent decade. Now, it's also not all serious. Have any of you ever come across this character, Robert Giddings? A really wonderful writer, a wild raconteur, I think a spoofer of the First Order, but also quite a famous engraver in his time. And he found himself washed up in a Welsh university during World War II when he really rather would have travelled to the South Seas and Pacific, having affairs and writing unbelievable books about the peoples of those places. And he got him stuck, himself stuck in Ireland and Britain and committed himself to writing books about rivers. He wrote a book about the Thames, he wrote a book about the Severn, and he wrote a book about the Louise. You could tell still by the period of the publication of this book in the early 1940s the way in which the tourist and commercial market was so important to the idea of these travelogues because he's in the 26th chapter before he leaves the west of Ireland. And I don't think people in court would entirely appreciate that. But he does wind his way finally down to this loveliest city in the world. I always say about Cork, and my wife is from Cork, but the only bad thing about it is that you can't tell people from Cork how good it is. Anybody who does not agree with me either was not born there or was prejudiced. The streets are wide, the quays are clean, even though they're doing their best to try and destroy them at the moment. The bridges are noble. And then he quotes Spencer, spreading thee that like an island fair encloses court with his divided flood. But always, always there is the problem of history within these renovations of Ireland as a place of peaceable waters because the line from Spencer that he leaves out is this. The story of an atrocity in Spencer's time. I suppose it's an atrocity depending on how you look at it. But this introduces again, I think, one further problematic that I'll move quickly on through. Am I doing okay for time? Which is to think that the ways in which water in the mid-20th century also becomes associated with certain kinds of difficulty that as much now as we might like to celebrate liquidity and transition and the interrelationship of things of an opening up and the kind of a freedom. That was also problematic in the mid-20th century whenever the question of the border, again, began to seem violent. And so even whenever you're thinking about someone like Cork in the time of the emergency, that there's a difficulty in thinking about Ireland as a liquid place because it brings up, it wells up old memories of violence and trouble. One of the ways around that was in a poem by Hewitt, which I don't really care for, except for the fact that it is the 
perhaps the only one of these works of art that I have come across that really gets to the idea of the steel, of that rock pool that you tell your children not to go into, the one with the green algal rim, with the water that has not been refreshed, except by beer cans for several times. And a famous poem, and comes up also in the little magazine of Bell, and very quickly I might talk to you how important the culture of the little magazines are to this history of coastal literature. I don't know if any of you have been reading Kevin Barry and Olivia Smith's Winter Pages at the moment. They're very much influenced, I think, by someone like Dermot Healy's Force 10. I'm not going to talk about Dermot Healy in the talk, but if you'd like to talk about him afterwards. Novels like A Goat Song, I think, are critical to this tradition of representation. But it's there in the bell, it's there in Envoy, it's there in Irish writing. That this fluid way of representing the country in all its variations has been there in the little magazines even before it's been there in the novels or the poetry collections. But when the tide ebbed, we're left stranded here in crevices and ledge-protected pools that have grown salter with the drying up. Isn't that a wonderful idea, that northern bitterness of which I was myself so much a part of the great common flow that kept us sweet? And there's something also there, I think, of Hewitt's experience of mid-century England, of the labour tradition, of the green and pleasant land. There's something Blakeian here being translated as missing from that Irish coastline. I like this poem, I must say, much better than those versions of Ulster representation of Hewitt's work where he tries to imagine a territorial possession of owning the valley bottoms and the natives in the hills or trying to think about it in an almost kind of classical aluminum way. I think there's something here which is more appropriate to that migration of peoples through the islands. There's something here which catches that kind of time, both of the speech and the sharpness of the character. There's something here about the bleakness if you had a strong disposition, there's a great dissertation to be written about the colour grey in 20th century Irish literature. And here you have a, a version of it, I think, softened a little bit that idea of being kept sweet. I think there's something quite sharp there too, isn't it? If you think recently, and I shouldn't stray too far, but the idea of kind of being bought off or being paid for to some degree of your loyalty being, if not purchased, at least to some degree for hire, of being kept sweet. And then again, Paul Muldoon's wonderful and approved read. When we came to the customs post at Ochnacloy as a colourville in a pedigree, I was holding my breath as if I might yet again be about to be underwater. These images and metaphors are all the way through the literature, and they are not generally accounted for. They are sometimes observed, but I don't think yet have been brought into any wider conversation. And I hope by the time I get to the end today, you'll have an idea of how successful or otherwise I have been at that. Now, in terms of the little magazines, I want to round back a little bit to an experiment that uh, owes something of its traditions to Trinity. I don't know if any of you in the audience ever were involved with this magazine or ever came across it or heard of it even. It's really fascinating because it's a prequel to Field Day, you remember? You always know they have to talk about it first to agree if they're going to remember it or not before they admit to it, but you can see behind the ink. What about this for an editorial board? Seamus Dean, Derek Mahan, Hugh Maxton, Gus Martin, and Michael Hill, rather unlikely. And if you look at the sponsors over there, I think this might have come from the collection. I wonder, because it's in Trinity in the library, was George Sims, whose name is ticked there. I wonder, was he the person who gave this? But you can also see the great classical scholar, W.B. Stanford. I think Samuel Beckett's in there too. I'm pretty sure that's Brian Moore, not Brian Moore, the rugby player. Richard Murphy, you can see. Harriet O'Donovan, of course, the connection back to the bell through Frank O'Connor and many others, Seamus Heaney, John Hewitt. Now, 
What's fascinating about Atlantis is that there's actually very little in the magazine about the coastal and about waterlands. But I thought that this is the very first time that Seamus Dean tried to create a literary magazine that might speak to the troubles in the island of Ireland as a whole. And it's a really trial piece of what later became Field Day and that project. And if you wanted to take that one step further, if you think about people like Stephen um, Ray and Brian Friel being so involved in Field Day, and if you think about a poem or a play like Translations and about the idea of Virgil, which again comes up so much in Seamus Heaney later on, that there's something of the seaborne cities about these far-flung peoples. You're never quite sure in Translations is Ireland to be a Carthage or a Rome that in this kind of, it's not mixed up, but these transitional spaces of the culture in the north, that even at this time in Dublin, that Dean was trying to think about it through a kind of metaphor of submergence, of a lost city underwater, of something that was disappeared, but that might be recoverable. And you can see again, and I only put this on it because Elena uh, Quillanon is in there. It's a pity she's not here today. I believe she's in the west of Ireland, but you can see what those traditions are. There would have been a time here when it would have been heresy to suggest Field Day being associated with Trinity College Dublin, I think. But there you can see that there is a thought connection. I'm going to move into the last part now. So the question of the North has come up, I think, frequently in this conversation with you today. I don't think it's because it has a particular purchase because of the troubles. But I do think that there was a double form of negotiation that had to happen, which was that in looking for liberty in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, Dublin might not have been the place to which you translated yourself. And you think even Heaney, when he came here, spent much of his time so that he was offside in Wicklow. Could you look to the United States? Many writers from Brian Moore on did. Or would you think about these sort of unclaimed spaces off there in the Atlantic? Heaney gets that a little bit, I think, in North and perhaps even more again, Maid McGuckian does on Ballycastle Beach. And what I found interesting in this was that when you get to the end of the idea of faithlessness, there was a kind of putting behind of the old claims as the idea of the water's speech. This comes up quite a lot in this poetry of the 70s and 80s. In fact, Elaine has a wonderful poem, A Letter to Pierce Hutchinson, when she talks about hearing water music that ever after ransacked my mind. But this provides a resource of vocabulary and imagery which is not defined by patriarchy, by a kind of male canon, but which reaches out through breakdown, uh, past the mask, to a different kind of apparition of presence, which is historical, I think, only in the sense that it's the rendition or response to all these particular points in time on mind. And what is the answer? Your voice was the longest I held in my mind. I didn't hear it. I held it in my mind, so kind of sound internalized, if not silent. It's not a typical speech, although I had forgotten there could be such light. All the way through this poetry from the mid 20th century to the present, I'm going to show you very quickly a poem by Claire McAllister, the visiting American writer who came and had an affair with the painter Patrick Swift. We could think very quickly about Louis McNeeson thinking about his father and this image of him by the coast in the west of Ireland. There is always, always a return to the idea of light and the idea of the outline. And it's a place that's hard to describe in the criticism because it's a place without words. It's a gesture that the poem makes to a different kind of transfiguration that is allowable in the languages of state and nation and religion and culture. And it's a kind of quiet freedom 
that you might pick up in some of Heaney's poetry again. So here's McAllister's poem. The really fascinating thing about this, for those of you who are studying little magazines, is the almost geometrical way in which she writes. I'll read just a couple of lines from it, just to give you a sense of its sort of fricative basis. And it would be something that would be easy to describe as modernist, but it's also, I think, something about these ways of life being placed upon each other, that you have to think about these poems visually. I held your words in my mind. Seabirds watched one noon and found no reason to be so pleased when wind was white for hours. You can hear ghosts of Blanid Salkelt in there. You can also perhaps hear ghosts of Samuel Beckett's poetry there, so much of which is based in memories of Connemara and of the northwest coast of France also. You think about his poem about Dieppe. Girl who was every bright dress of the season, but once you had or thought to have is yours, who will possess not things, but where is their sought or taken, when all taking is to give. Now, for a long time, and that long time has now ended, poems, I think, like this were unreadable. They didn't speak to a tradition of landscape poetry. They didn't speak to the concerns of the literature as they were commonly held. They had no network in which to resonate or reflect. That has changed, I think, with the recuperation of so many different kinds of writing in the last decade. And I think, again, if you were imagining a study by the coast of water, that that sense of walking along the beach, looking at how the tide changes, thinking about what's submerged and rising, about the idea of depth, about the idea of perspective, also about the idea of height, that you might have a different language in which to describe these kinds of works that might also work with something like Louis McNeese's poem, The Strand, in which he is thinking about other painted works of art, but also trying to create a trace of his father against the light of the rest of Ireland. The mirror of wet and imputes a lasting mood to island truancies. And of course there's a very strong tradition in this island writing about the idea of mood, about the way in which weather affects you. I haven't talked at all really today about that tradition through Singh, partly because, and again you're welcome to argue with me, that particular iteration of island literature is a kind of projection I think of the national. It's not quite the same as a coastal literature which is always immediate, always in transition, and always in translation. It's a kind of anthropological reportage, which is meant to reflect back upon the metropolis. We are very near the end. I wanted to give you a sense now of the different ways in which, if we're talking about reflection, this contemporary literature has broken off in so many different ways. I didn't discuss very much with you the environmental change of our late Anthropocene and the terrors, frankly, of having a warm day in February in Ireland or having it rain for six weeks non-stop in Athens, Georgia. But there is also, I think, in this awareness of our human limit at the coast, of the things that we cannot do, of that great passage in Tim Robinson, whenever he takes the proper step, he looks out and what does he see which is not like him and which is not understandable to him. And it's part of that modesty that allows him to represent it in the way that he does with the dolphin breaking the tide. But there are many more moments now, I think, where the natural, if it doesn't break down, it at least emerges into consciousness and has voice or meaning in ways that it didn't before. And I think actually one of the books that started all this going way back is Alish Nidudna's The Bray House, which is a really strange novel. I don't know if any of you have read it about a nuclear disaster on the island of Ireland. And I think it foreshadows some of the things. I'm going to read this to you now, just because I think that uh, Kevin Barry is such an amazing uh, 
ventriloquist. So this is from Beetlebone. Have many of you read it? The story of John Lennon's uh, imagined journey to an island that he did own and did visit two times, Dornish, off the west coast of Ireland in Clue Bay, which Kevin Barry so brilliantly describes as a submerged valley. So this is John Lennon, kind of at the end of his senses, and he sees a seal in front of him. I know I'm in Dublin, I don't have to apologise for swearing, but my American habit has been moved. You've had your warning. All this, he swings his head to indicate the world beyond. He's got a fat staring head on, like a bouncer. Fuck, he says. You don't mean. I do, John. It won't last. You mean everything? It works, he says. But it sounded worse. The wind, the waves, the water, he says. But it sounded as water. It's all an extra time, he says. It's all of it fucked, son. Mostly what John cannot get his head around is the Scouse accent. And there's a really beautiful thread all the way through Kevin Barry's writing of this deep attachment to Liverpool and what the city of Liverpool means and its connections to Ireland, but even just it being of itself another maritime city. And I would so love to read a cultural comparison of Liverpool, Dublin, Glasgow. I know Edna Longley a long time talked about these kinds of transitions and movements, but perhaps it's time again to go and look at these things because they are also not just questions about Ireland, but of England. And if you think, I think of Anne Enright's greatest book, The Gathering, which won the Booker Prize in 2007. Again, a novel about drowning, in this case, a novel about suicide, about the ways in which people become water, about the difference between knowing how to move and not wanting to swim, that there can also be a choice in immersion, which is not a kind of a liberty, but an extinction, an end. And this moment, whenever the central character who's trying to retrace her brother's steps comes out, of course, there's a gesture towards Philip Larkin and his train journeys through England and the Whitsun weddings. But there's also finally this confidence, I think, at the start of the 21st century of going to the Brighton line, the town stacked behind me, and behind that all the way to England in their smoke and light, jammed to a halt here, just here, by the wide smell of the sea. There's something, I think, in this coastal literature that also allows the transition of other places outside our traditional ways of thinking about the interrelationships on these islands. And I think that The Gathering is a really wonderful example of that. There's a beautiful passage whenever the character goes out to the north side of Dublin in the morning and she's a kind of a frosty, cool part of the day. And what she's looking at are all the jet trails that the planes take off and fly to the United States. And again, you have that visual sense of being lifted up and looking, but you really have a symbolic map of all of these connections through the coastal space which are not entrained or encloseted by our inherited boundaries and i'll look at the sea and then Elaine, and then we'll be through the sea it seems to me is one of the few books i've ever read that gives you the idea or the experience of what a kind of chilling immersion might be like it's almost like reading prose through a wall of transparent water. It's not a book that gives itself away. Its narrative is not something which reveals anything great in the sense of it being a mystery or a secret. But rather, the only way to make sense of it, if sense can be made, is by laying sets of visual images across each other. And one of the most important parts of that is thinking about the different ways in which visuality makes sense in the text. Norden, one of the central characters, is himself an art historian. There's a part of the memory in the book, whenever thinking back to being a small boy, that he imagines climbing up a tree like a jack tar, and it clutches that. 
lovely kind of a Napoleonic version of memory here, and I think about Patrick O'Brien, who spent so many of his late years here in Trinity College in Dublin, while writing about that Napoleonic warfare. At this height, the breeze was a steady flow of solid air, smelling of inland things, earth and smoke and animals. I could see the roofs of the town in the horizon, and further off and higher up, like a mirage, a tiny silver ship, propped motionless on a smear of pale sea. It's so fascinating that at the beginning of the 21st century that we return to a place that was described, I think, by Joyce, perhaps not from that height, but I think to some degree from that perspective at the start of the 20th century, that there has been a kind of a return to an awareness of the coast as a place of opening, uh, but also as a resource of a different kind of writing about the landscape in which one finds oneself, and not just a landscape of actual physical place, but the mental contours of the place are again in change. I don't know if I want to take it so far as to say this is connected to a kind of Celtic tiger Ireland, that the confluence of Anne Enright and thinking about England is connected to the confluence of an emerging new Ireland. But I think that you could say that in these transitional times, it's fascinating that a century apart that the coastal comes back into things. And to stop now, and you've been very patient to bear with me, I wanted to read this to you. I think it's really a remarkable poem. I have been so pleased that Elaine was the Ireland Chair Professor this past year. I think she's one of the great contemporary writers in Ireland. I think this is one of the remarkable poems about the construction of art. And as I read it to you, I want you to keep in mind that passage when we thought about the ark being lifted with lanterns in Joyce earlier on. And think about the way in which the weight of elevation through art here is described. This is a poem about writing poetry, but not in a technical way. It's about that intellectual and emotional power that it requires, and also this modesty, again, of always beginning. Learning at last to see, I must begin drawing. It is cooler here. And the poem is set in a church in Italy to which the speaker retires in the boisterous life of a festival outside. Darkish stone, slate, a marble well, a ramp with a squashed feather stuck to one side, then old clean tiles. I am drawn, staggering. It feels like lifting a tall swaying ship with wind-filled streamers across the threshold. And indeed the nave, the nave, hums like a ship. The corded masts and spars are tugged by wind and the uppermost gallery swings and revolves. This is not just the invitation to be moved by a poem. It's not just the idea that art should somehow be open to other senses. It's not just that democratic gesture of inclusion that we would require of a contemporary work which sees the world in all its complexity. It's actually, I think, the embodiment of those things. And it is that because finally here, you have not just at the coast an awareness of a tide lapping over of water over land, land over sea, but you actually have the memory of water inscribed in the very rock of this Italian church. It's a remarkable poem, and I think symbolic of the continuing ways in which the coastal, the liquid, and the water have both a history and an aesthetic in contemporary Irish literature. Thank you all. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. 
the hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.